Nintendo doesn't want to play along with the rest of the industry, but is that really a bad thing? Good morning, good Friday morning to you. Can you feel that? It's the weekend, it's almost here. Just power through one more day and you're good. I'm Shane Satterfield from Sifted, and this is Good Morning Gaming for February 4th, 2022. It comes bright and early every weekday to our patrons who pledge at patreon.com sifted, and it's delayed a couple days for everyone else. If you like our content, we also have a separate podcast feed for our flagship show, Game Face, that you can find by searching your favorite podcast service. You'll find the podcast versions of the rest of our content in the same feed you found this. So Nintendo released its Q3 financial report today. We'll get to those numbers in a second. But to me, the big news is that Nintendo also stated that it feels that the Switch is only in the middle of its life cycle. That's right. Nintendo thinks the Switch is only halfway home, which is sure to disappoint those who are counting on its successor anytime soon. More importantly, though, it also said that we should not expect it to compete with Microsoft and Sony for acquisitions. Now, on Game Face, I mentioned that I would not be surprised if Nintendo stayed out of the arms race, and now, according to Nintendo itself, that is going to be the case. Is this a smart move? Nintendo stated that it's not interested in doing this because it's afraid that the studios it acquires may not have quote-unquote Nintendo DNA. But I would argue that if you have talented people to start with, you can teach the culture. There may be some bumps along the way. There may be some moments where you're second-guessing your decision. But ultimately, if your culture is that strong, there's no reason why you can't assimilate new people, new talented people, into that culture. But really, the biggest question is, does this hinder Nintendo in any way, refusing to make acquisitions that could bolster its first-party studios and therefore its first-party exclusive output for its various platforms? And I would argue, no. <laughs> Nintendo also shared that while it isn't interested in acquiring outside studios, it is going to invest a good bit of money in bolstering its internal studios. Now, whether that means Nintendo is going to start a brand new studio, if you remember not that long ago, well, now it has been actually a while ago. About a decade ago, it started as Tokyo Studio, and we've seen amazing output from that studio. So it certainly is capable of launching a new internal development team and have massive success with the products that it creates. So I would argue no. It's It really is crazy to think that Nintendo can continue to play its own game, dance to its own tune, and be as successful as it has been. And there's no arguing the data. None. There's no way you could argue it. The Switch has now sold 103 million units. It just passed the Wii. Can you remember what it was like when the Wii was out? You couldn't watch the local news without there being some culture report where a reporter went to the local nursing home and there they were playing Wii Sports Bowling and to a lesser extent Wii Sports Tennis. Somehow the Switch has managed to pass the Wii, which I would argue at one point most of us thought would never happen with another Nintendo platform. Now, it is cheating a little bit because in the past it would have the Wii, but then it would also have a companion handheld. And we've never 
taken those numbers and smashed them together into one number for Nintendo, which is essentially what you're doing here with the Switch. You're combining its console sales with its handheld sales. And truth be told, Switch has not sold as if it were both the Wii plus a Nintendo handheld. It's just now past the Wii on its own. So Nintendo is doing very, very well. However, Q3 was not the best quarter for Nintendo, but a big problem for Nintendo is that everything that it does from this point forward is going to be compared with 2021, which was just, hopefully, God willing, we'll never have a replication of 2021 again, where everyone is locked inside for a better part of an entire year. I don't think we'll ever see that opportunity for Nintendo again. So any quarterly results, annual results from coming from Nintendo, you should take them with a grain of salt because it really was a special year last year. So if you remember back to his Q2 results, Nintendo had cut its Switch hardware sales forecast to 24 million. And now with its Q3 results, it's chopped off another million with an estimate of 23 million hardware units for the financial year. On the flip side, Nintendo has increased its software sales estimate by 20 million units to 220 million. What does that tell you? It tells me that the sequel to Breath of the Wild is absolutely coming this year. And if they're accounting for an extra 20 million units roughly, I would also argue that it may not be all that long until the game is released. Going through more of Nintendo's financials, net sales of approximately 11.5 billion, which is just insane, but that's still down 6%. Operating profit of 4.1 billion, that's down 9.3%, and then net profit of 3.2 billion USD. That's profit. And that's only down 2.5% on the previous year. So profit-wise, Nintendo basically is doing just as well as it did the year prior. So while it may seem strange that a company can operate in its own, hey, Nintendo says it itself, in its own blue ocean and continue to be as successful as it has been, that truly is just a testament to the quality of Nintendo software. That's why you're seeing the increased estimates for software while Nintendo is saying hardware may actually be down. And as a side note, we did get a little bit of disappointing news. Metroid Dread has sold just 2.7 million units so far. That may not seem too bad, and it may be ultimately the best-selling Metroid ever when it's all said and done. But with Switch now over 100 million units sold, that's less than 3% penetration, which is not good at all. Now for some more stories from the top of your SIFs. In a 20-minute presentation today, the PlayStation console exclusive Ghostwire Tokyo was finally revealed in full. It's also coming to PC, by the way, just so you don't forget that. This is Shinji Mikami, the creator of Resident Evil's brand new IP. It appears his studio, Tango Gameworks, has decided to turn its back on the Evil Within franchise for this brand new game. And now that I've seen it in full, I think it might be the right call. When the game starts, you wake up on the streets of Tokyo with a voice inside your head and strange elemental powers. It turns out you're possessed by a spirit named KK. You must work together to figure out why so many people in Tokyo have disappeared. To do that, you use ethereal weaving to take the city back from a bunch of ghouls. It's essentially a first-person magic casting game. However, you also get a bow and some magic cards to toss. You also have what's called Tengu ability that lets you parkour and soar through the city like Spider-Man. 
Much like Assassin's Creed, you also have to cleanse fog-laden sections of the city. There are stealth attacks, ability trees, and all the other elements you associate with open-world games. One caveat, though, it only has a teen rating, so it may not have as much bite as Mikami's other projects. It's coming to PlayStation and PC March 25th. So while our heads are still reeling over Sony spending so much money to purchase Bungie, financial analysts are even more off-put by it. Our man Pactor did an interview today with GamesIndustry.biz where he said that Sony way overpaid for Bungie. He also said that he fears that what Sony paid for Bungie may slow down consolidation because now studios are going to think that they're worth more than they really are. So he believes that what's going to happen is studios are going to bump up their asking price and publishers are going to balk on that. Another caveat that came out today among that deal is that Sony is going to spend $1.2 billion of the purchase price to retain Bungie staff. Now this was something that I brought up on Game Face. Matt had said that a lot of the money that Sony was spending was to basically pay for the expertise of the people at Bungie because they're good at creating games as a service, something Sony is not good at at all. And my counterpoint to that was, well, they're just employees. You can hire those people away. But Sony was way out ahead of that. $1.2 billion of the purchase price is going to be spent just to give Bungie staff bonuses, which is awesome. Because, let's be honest, most of the people who are working at Bungie now are not heavily vested in the company. There are people who were hired later on. They may not have any shares of the company at all. So when Bungie was purchased at such a high price, a lot of those employees were not guaranteed to get paid, but now they are. So this also makes the purchase price make a little bit more sense, knowing that they've basically dedicated a third of it to make sure that those employees don't leave. Also in the report, it was revealed that for employees to get these bonuses, they would have to sign on to stay with Bungie for X amount of time, depending on, I'm guessing, how big those bonus payments are. And then Sony said that the remainder of the money will be used to directly purchase private shares of the studio, essentially completing the actual purchase of Bungie. The Washington Post chimed in and it said, quote, employees will receive 50% of their equity payouts when the Sony deal closes and 50% over the next few years meaning that to get that bonus, you're going to have to lock yourself in with Bungie for the foreseeable future. It's great for PlayStation. Hopefully the money that PlayStation is offering the employees is well worth it as well. Activision Blizzard sales were down a whopping 18% last quarter, with Call of Duty dropping an eye-popping 30%, which is basically in line with the rumored 40% drop for Call of Duty Vanguard. I'm not surprised at all. Call of Duty Vanguard is completely unremarkable. It's a passable, workable entry in the Call of Duty franchise, but it's really nothing special. However, net income was up 11% thanks to Diablo 2 Resurrected, Candy Crush, and Call of Duty Mobile. So does it appear that people are leaving the console versions of Call of Duty behind to play the mobile version? Which I, I have played, and it's a shadow of the console versions. But maybe a certain percentage of Activision Blizzard's audience has decided that Call of Duty Mobile is good enough. There were also steep declines in participation in Call of Duty Warzone, which 
Now that we know Call of Duty Warzone 2 is probably slated for next holiday season, that release date does not seem too soon at all. The combined 371 million monthly active users across Activision Blizzard is the lowest since 316 million it reported in the third quarter of 2019. The good news is that revenues were up 9% and a Warcraft mobile game was also revealed today, which should help a great deal. In an interview with IGN today, Tim Schafer discussed the development and success of Psychonauts 2. He also spoke about the future of his studio Double Fine now that they're under the Microsoft umbrella. He stated that now that money isn't a concern, they can develop big and small projects in concert and really just follow their inspiration going forward, which is a great thing for all of us. He said it will also free up some of his free time to be creative with game design and writing. Again, good stuff for all of us. He also said he's interested in growing the size of the studio, but at a pace that won't sacrifice its culture. When pressed on whether he would create a sequel to Brutal Legend, Schaefer said he would rather focus on new ideas. It's a great interview by IGN's Ryan McCaffrey, and I highly recommend giving it a watch when you see it in your sift. All right, let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll tackle today's boss fight. Welcome to today's Boss Fight, where I tackle random topics that may or may not be related to video games. Today I want to address something that is very much related to video games, and that is bugs in video games, and in a broader sense, the video game console hard drive. Reviews for Dying Light 2 came out yesterday, and we talked about it on Good Morning Gaming on, it, on yesterday's episode. It's coming in at a 7.7 right now on Metacritic. It could maybe go down eventually as more websites and publications give it a go and share their impressions of it. But I would argue, how in the hell does it have a 7.7? If you watch some of these video reviews and see some of the bugs that are in this game, they're awful. Game-breaking bugs, save-breaking bugs, just general stuff we see in a lot of other games like falling through levels or, you know, cutscenes not firing off or voice acting disappearing. I could go on and on at all the problems with that game. And it is kind of funny because it's not getting the same heat as another game that launched in similar condition. And that game would be Cyberpunk 2077. You don't have to think back too far to remember a time when a game shipped, that was it. Whatever was on the disc or whatever was on the cart, that was it. There was no updating it. There was no fixing it. Therefore, games were launched in a much better state than they are now. I remember, I believe it was Turok 2 for the N64 had a fatal bug in the final version of the cart. And you could contact a claim... And they would send you a new cart, and you had to send in your old cart. I can't even fathom how much that cost a claim, and what kind of a money sink that was for that publisher at the time. And consequently, a claim didn't last much longer after that. But you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to do a lot of things anymore that you used to have to do. Like, make sure that a game is 100% bug-free before you actually ship it. But here's the rub. The hard drive in video game consoles have 
provided so many improvements to being a player that it's very easy to forget, or in some cases completely forgive, games that are released a buggy mess. Let's think about the things that putting hard drives in consoles have given us. It's given us DLC on consoles, something that PC players were very familiar with for a very long time. Suddenly, console players were able to experience playing a game beyond the final credits. Even if it was just something as simple as just adding a really cool weapon or new costumes or whatever, it didn't have to be a campaign expansion. Any change or update to a game was a revelation back then. Then you start thinking about being able to stream data off of hard drives and how, you know, the bus is so much bigger and that it allowed game developers to create much bigger worlds. Again, something that I would not want to change, something I'm very happy that did change in the industry and it has made our games better. Saves, we don't have to buy memory cards anymore. Some of you guys are probably too young to have ever even bought a memory card, but they weren't cheap. They were flash memory. And sometimes by the time a console's life cycle was over, you will have spent $100 just on memory cards. Now, granted, we have found ourselves buying external drives. We've found ourselves buying SSD expansions for PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X. But I would argue that those are just luxuries. You don't need to do that stuff to enjoy your console. In the old days, you literally had to buy the memory cards or delete a save for a game that you may have spent 50 or 60 hours playing so that you could make room for saves for the new game that you just purchased. So hard drives in general have been a great thing for gaming, but there's a trade-off. And that trade-off is that developers now know that they don't have to release finished games. They can make them good enough and get them out there. And for whatever reason, as players, we have accepted this. We have told developers and publishers that it's okay to do this. And how did we do that? We didn't write them letters. We didn't go on Twitter and tweet at them and say, hey, I'm okay with this broken game. We did it with our money. We buy the game still. This is why Cyberpunk 2077 is such an interesting case study. Because I would argue it changed how players look at games. It changed what players are willing to accept from games that they pay full price for. Now, there were some outlets that didn't take Cyberpunk 2077 to task. They gave it really high review scores despite all the issues. That still boggles my mind. But the vast majority of publications that reviewed the game were very upfront with all the bugs and the other issues. And you'd have to be living under a rock to not have gone on YouTube and watched a compilation of Cyberpunk bugs and other issues because they were funny and they were entertaining and they were everywhere because there were so many bugs. But when we all decided that that was okay and we all went and bought the game and played the game and sure some of us may have gone online and and complained and argued but that's it's our own fault we all knew the state of the game at launch and we all decided you know what i'm willing to take the risk and i'm going to buy it so what does that do that sends a message to everyone else that hey we can get away with this now. It's death by a thousand paper cuts. The more games that come out that are buggy that we keep buying, the more likely it is that future developers are going to go back and look at the data and say, well, this game launched with a bunch of bugs and it still sold X, Y, or Z number of units. It's our fault is what I'm getting at. It's our fault that we're getting games like Dying Light 2 and Cyberpunk 2077. 
You can try to blame the studio all you want, but if they didn't have the data to back up the fact that they could release a broken game and still do very well financially, they wouldn't do it. So instead of blaming hardware innovations and, and things that actually, for the most part, have made playing video games miles better, maybe we should look in the mirror and realize if we really want to affect change, we've got to do it. The players have to do it. Thanks for listening to Good Morning Gaming. I hope you've had an amazing week. I'm Shane Satterfield, and you can do what the cool kids do and follow me on Twitter at Dinfire and follow Sifted at Sifted Games. We'll be back with another episode on Monday, so have yourself a great weekend. But until then, make sure you seize today, because there will never be another.